0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Theological
1: education is imperative to the church. Whether its influence is heard in VBS, Sunday school, or in a seminary classroom, Philip Bethencourt led a discussion about this topic between JT English, Albert Moeller, Danny Aiken, and Matt Hall, all who are influential within the church and higher education. We hope you benefit from this discussion.
0: We're going to be talking about the future of theological education, and I'm excited by the panelists that are joining me up here. I have Matt Hall with me, who you've met earlier at Dean of Boyce College and at Southern Seminary, Dr. Danny Akin, who serves as the president at Southeastern Seminary, Albert Moeller, who serves as Southern Seminary's president. We just heard that keynote from him. And then right next to me, the hometown favorite, J.T. English, who's right here at the Village and leads the Village Institute. And I'm just curious, as we get started, by show of hands, how many of you went to vacation Bible school as a kid? And how many of you have been through Sunday school classes at your local church at some point in your life? then every one of you has been involved in some level on theological education. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about higher education and how it relates to theology and theological training, but theological education is essential to the mission of the church. And, and we're going to think uh, specifically, Dr. Mueller, first about what's going on in Christian higher ed. And so uh, what would you say the state of play is right now when it comes to Christian higher ed? What are some of the things you're noticing? Where is it going in the current state of higher education to date?
2: Yeah, well, that's a huge question. Thank you, Philip. I have to back up for a moment and say higher education is one of the sectors of American society, before you get to Christian higher education, most in flux mm-hmm. and turmoil. For instance, the cost of higher education has been paralleled only by healthcare costs and rapid escalation. And so, higher education, that for most of the last half of the 20th century is becoming more accessible and more affordable for people, has become less so. Uh, over the last generation, and uh, the costs are basically out of control. And you're going to see a lot of educational institutions fail. I mean, a lot of them. You're going you're to see a lot of schools go out of business. Christian higher education is, by definition, private higher education, which is the worst-funded form of higher education. So by definition, Christian higher education, you take all the financial pressures, and they're already a lot worse. But then you look at the cultural pressures, and we realize that we lo- have lost most of the institutions throughout Christian history, founded as Christian higher education institutions. We haven't <laughs> lost them all, thanks be to God. Uh, we've recovered a few, and, uh, and there's some really strong schools. But, uh, but the financial challenges are massive, and the cultural pressures are massive. So if you think about the pressures, you think about just the LGBTQ revolution and all the rest... You can think, well, you know, you got the Department of Justice, you've got uh, the Department of Education, you got all this. Well, you also have, for a lot of schools, something like the NCAA, uh, or you've got uh, uh, Title IV uh, funding. Mm-hmm. So this just, is just a lot of pressures out there. Uh, it, I, I, will, I will tell you that having been at Southern for 25 years, uh, most of the conversations I have about higher education are conversations no one knew they would have 25 years ago.
0: Yeah.
1: What are the trends that the rest of you notice as
0: you look around the
1: landscape of higher education today? Well, let me just piggyback on what Dr. Mueller said and point out that that's one of the blessings of being a Southern Baptist because we have this thing called the Cooperative Program. And I'll take my institution. His is even higher because of the enrollment. Every year, I hold out my empty hand and Southern Baptist put a check for about $8 million in that hand. And all I say is, thank you. And as a result of that, we are able to keep tuition lower It's a missiological um, reason. There's a premise underneath uh, that. We want to have our students graduate as much as possible with no debt so that they can immediately go wherever it is that God is calling them to go, whether that be the international mission field or North American church planting or going into a church that they do revitalization or maybe a different kind of situation. But those three things I just mentioned, uh, they're not going to have a very high, a very lofty, a very lucrative salary. And if they have debt to pay off, they're not gonna be able to go to the mission field. They're gonna have to get a job, pay off that debt. And what we discover is if that happens over three, five, seven years, that passion to go to the nations for whatever reason dissipates. And the next thing you know, not only are they not going to the mission field or to do church planning, they don't go into vocational ministry. So we have the same challenge. Dr. Muller is exactly right. But by God's grace, we do have some things that as a result of our convention of churches coming together that alleviate that, but it's something we're going to have to continue to work hard at. We haven't kept up. Uh, One last word. When I went to Southeastern Seminary in 1992 as a dean of students, uh, the cooperative program paid 75% of our total budget. Uh, Today, it's less than 40%. It's Southern. It's what?
2: 22.
1: 22%. Hmm. So, obviously, you got to raise money by annual giving, endowment, or tuition. And so, those costs have to go somewhere. And so, we find a greater pressure in raising annual giving, trying to raise endowment, because our goal is to keep tuition as low as we possibly can for missiological, evangelistic, church centered
0: purposes. Matt, what about uh, let's think a little bit about online education. When I look at the life of Jesus, It's very incarnational, the nature of his ministry. He's training 12 disciples. He's amongst the people when he teaches and preaches. And in some ways, it seems as if online training is creating a disconnect from that incarnational model. But at the same time, it's opening up all sorts of avenues that were never there before. We had an ERLC staffer who, over the last few years, did his entire MDiv at Southern fully online while working with us. And that kind of opportunity wouldn't have been able to be there before. So how should we think about some of the the online options available for students today?
3: Yeah, I think the online question simply reveals or, or sh- shines a light on some deeper underlying questions about the nature and mission of theological education. So uh, all of us, I think, on this platform are committed to doing online theological education well uh, to the glory of God and, and service of the local church. But if you're expecting your seminary to do for you something that God did not design for it to do, you're going to be disappointed whether it's on campus or online. So we believe uh, at both Boyce College and Southern Seminary, and I've checked with the president. I think he'll validate what I'm about to say. Uh, We're committed to doing online education, I think, as well, if not better than anyone else in theological education. Um, But we also recognize that we cannot replace online what happens in person in a classroom. There is something that happens because of our embodiment uh, in a classroom that beyond just the delivery of information in a lecture, there is, uh, there's the back and forth, there's the, there's the discussion after class, there's the opportunity to have a relationship, so to speak. But I, I want to go back to what I said at the beginning. Deeper even than that is if you're expecting your seminary to do for you what only the local church can do, then you're going to be disappointed whether it's on campus or online. I like how Don Carson's put it elsewhere. uh, If you uh, expect the seminary to do this in the wrong way, you're going to look at the seminary as like a finishing school. But I can't really help a student fully and truly understand how to care for somebody who is bearing their spouse uh, the, the place to do that fully, I think, in God's design, and you alluded to Jesus' ministry, is by a pastor, an older pastor, taking a younger man who's preparing for ministry, taking him to a funeral at a gravesite so he can see firsthand, this is how you grieve with those who grieve, this is how you bury the dead, this is how you weep with those who weep. Uh, you can't really do that as well in a classroom to begin with. So our mission, and I I know this is true both at Southern, Southeastern, and all of our Southern Baptist seminaries, is to support uh, the churches that make up the Southern Baptist Convention and uh, fulfill our mission in that way. So whether you do that online or on campus, uh, there are going to be unique challenges in either one. But we believe that online uh, delivery can actually work when it's done in conjunction with the local church. And JT could say more about that, I'm sure.
0: Well, I don't that was you a say more about you. that. So yeah, like that's, that's that's it's been it. one of the fascinating things about watching what you're doing here at the village with the institute. Walk us through the vision and what y'all are doing, but also help us translate it. Not everybody's in this context. Right, right. So what are some things that churches should be thinking about the way they could do theological training back in their local ministry setting?
4: Yeah, well, what Dr. Moeller said is exactly right. Christians have lost more theological institutions than we've kept, except for the church. I learned that from you, and that's exactly right. So when we think about doing local church ministry, theological education should be a fundamental piece of, of ultimately what we're trying to do. So that's really what the Institute is trying to do. And part of, part of theology, we've said that th- uh, all theology is partially autobiography, but so is philosophy of ministry. So I came to faith in college. I grew up in a post-Christian context, came to faith through a campus crusade Bible study. Somebody just shared the four spiritual laws with me. I came to know the Lord, got discipled through crew for three years and felt like the Lord was calling me into pastoral ministry. I sat down with my Southern Baptist pastor and asked him, I said, I think the Lord's calling me to ministry. How can I get equipped to do what you do? And his answer was, go to seminary. And I said, what's that? I didn't even know what it was. I was so far out of the subculture that I didn't understand that there was this whole world of theological education and pastoral equipping and missional training. Uh, And for the life of me as a new Christian, couldn't understand why I had to leave the church in order to lead in the church. And so I had to move my family across the country twice just in order to receive theological education and had to overcome so many of the obstacles that you just mentioned, whether it's finances or other things and and, uh, geographical relocation. And so during my time, uh, both at Dallas Seminary and then again at Southern and working at Southern, the Lord never took away from me that driving passion to see what would it look like for a church to do theological education, come alongside a seminary to do theological education as as well as we can. The thing that I'm grateful for in the Southern Baptist Convention is that I think all of our seminaries are committed to doing theology for the church. There's no doubt about that. And I benefited from that education. But my vision is to see if we can take it one step farther. What if we can do theological education in the church and from the church? And so in the Village Church Institute, what we're trying to do is raise up a group of students and ministers and members here who are doing the work of theological dialogue and doing the work of theological education here. So we have what's called the Village Church Institute, where we're trying to take people all the way from perhaps being a pagan all the way to being a pastor and everything in between, providing learning environments for them across the board. So we have classes Well, you're right, Philip. we do have some resources here that that I know not everyone has, but we have about 3,000 people enrolled in our classes each semester. We have a training program, which is our seminary light training program. We have a wonderful relationship with Southern where we're able to offer uh, 21 credits to our graduates and students if they wanted to continue online education, or we have several who've moved to Louisville to do that. We're starting a residency as well. When we started the training program, if if some of you are thinking, how in the world can this happen in my context? Are my people going to buy into a vision of doing robust and rigorous theological education in the church? Even after I took the job here, I was fairly skeptical about what it would look like. How many people are actually going to be interested in this? I was praying for 15 people to be involved in our training program, which is our year-long discipleship program, working through biblical theology, systematic theology and spiritual formation. I was praying for 15 people. Its, its primary sources, it's Calvin, Augustine, Bovink, Edwards, massive portions of scripture, doctrinal statements. I have several of you are students in here, I see you praying for 15 people. That first year we had 459 applicants. So I can assure you, if you put forward a vision in your church that sees theology not as inaccessible and something that's reserved for the elites, but actually is accessible and important and practical for every single believer, they will rise to that occasion. So when we raise the bar, people have not only wanted to meet it, but exceed it. So if you're thinking about, sorry, just maybe one last thing. If you're thinking about practical things, (laughs) practical things, think about putting scripture before your people as often as you can. I don't care if you have 450 applicants or one person you're discipling. I wish my pastor would have said to me, come alongside me. I'd like to raise you up for the work of ministry. Yeah, you know, on the online,
2: I appreciate everything that's been said. And uh, I, I, look, I, I am not the kind of seminary president who was immediately for this. Um, that's, that's an understatement. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I had to be convinced of it. And I am convinced of it, or we wouldn't be doing it. And we wouldn't be doing it at the level we're doing it if I were not convinced of it. And I can give you lofty explanations as to why and all kinds of documentation. What I want to tell you about is that on the way here, Mary and I stopped for gourmet eating at In-N-Out. <laughs> and, uh, and while we were there, we FaceTimed by invitation with Benjamin, our two-and-a-half-year-old grandson. Okay. Now, that's just about perfect. And by the way, the food goes away. And there's one main thing. And FaceTime is fantastic. <laughs> it is unbelievably good. I mean, you're watching real time. You can have a conversation. You can look at face. You can... Uh, but it's not picking him up and holding him. Right. No. It's not playing on the floor with him. So I just wanna say, look, I think online theological education is like FaceTime. It's the most amazing thing. Mm. I mean, because there used to be nothing between writing a longhand letter and picking him up and hugging him. Now there's something in between that's really important and really good and we need to be good stewards of it. Mm. But we just need to make certain, I don't want I, I to, no, there's not a grandparent or a parent in the world who wants to live by Facebook, no. you know. And, and then you, you said one other thing. When you asked the question, it was very interesting. You said that a young man on the ERLC staff, I think a staffer who works yes, with sir. you, had done this. Okay, so the important part I want to point out is the with you. Uh, because it turns out that the average successful online student is deeply embedded in a healthy church. Right. And is deeply embedded in a web of good relationships in the church. And here's the other thing: if that person's not, then that online cohort may become the closest lifeline that person has uh, to the kind of gospel fellowship. But then again, he or she's not going to be satisfied with that permanently. But it's going to want more. So I'll stop. But that's it. FaceTime face versus pickup time: uh, we do know the difference.
0: But FaceTime's really good. Absolutely. And I want to come back to you, Dr. Aiken, because I have a friend who's been a pastor for decades. And he tells a story about when he graduated from seminary, he made a list of the top 20 or so most promising students that he graduated with. He said, I want to keep an eye on these guys as they go to the ministry and see what happens. And then over time, he started noticing burnout or moral failure or other things would lead them to leave the ministry. And he would cross out a name whenever that person was gone. And he told me that by about 30 years in, there was only two or three left out of those 20 Uh, because of burnout or moral failure. And we we see that happen uh, repeatedly at the pastoral level. We even see that at times happen with seminary professors or others like that. What can seminaries be doing to not just train students, but... Equip them with the endurance to stand all the tests that they're going to face from the enemy over the course of a ministry.
1: That's a great question. And I think what has to happen, and it's not something that we naturally do, we have to be very intentional about it. Not only do we want to address their intellectual life, we also have to address their spiritual life and their heart. And that's not natural to a seminary because by its very nature, you're teaching massive amounts of information and and it's knowledge-driven. But you don't have to neglect the heart in the process of doing that. So one of the things we did when I was at Southern with Dr. Muller for eight years and now at Southeastern, we're really, really big on emphasizing your participation and activity in a local church. We're very clear. The seminary cannot take the place of the local church in your life. You need to be in a body where there are believers that can come alongside of you and minister to your heart, your soul, your life, we're going to do that too. But that's the natural location for that to take place. And then the other thing is, as a seminary, we have to work, and and for us, in, in the last year, we actually moved Chuck Lawless, who was at Southern for 15 years, we moved him into a new vice president position for spiritual life and formation. And his assignment now is to help foster a campus life for prayer, for spiritual devotion. We have people now, we know every single day, uh, spontaneously students gathering in different places on the campus to pray. There are things we can do that are programmatic, but when you see it begin to happen spontaneously and without you making it happen, I think you know you're beginning to make some headway and you're beginning to move uh, in the right direction. Then we just have to remind ourselves, if we're going to obey fully the great commandment, we're going to teach our students to love the Lord their God with all their mind. That's the last one, but I'm going to start there, but also with their heart and their soul and their strength. So we've got to work intentionally, the mind and the heart, not separating the two. Otherwise, we're giving them a deficient theological education. Okay. Still,
3: one thought. Just, i thinking it's been 12 years since I finished seminary, and if you took the list of guys that I graduated with, um, what you, that anecdote you shared resonates? And the guys who I look at now and who I think are actually being formed into their most fruitful season of ministry now, when I was in seminary, they weren't the guys who you would have thought were the rock stars. Mm-hmm. They, these were guys, they were working the midnight shift at UPS. They were preaching at a little country church where they probably paid them in lunch. Uh, they didn't do anything, and nobody knew who they were. And, but the Lord has used them. And I think the, the critical thing is that season during the seminary, whether they were in Louisville or wherever, uh, was formative in shaping their soul, mm-hmm. in terms of the disciplines, the integrity, and, and you got to have some people. I think, frankly, that knew you back when, yes. uh, that knew the real know the real you. Because if the only people that ever know you are your your church members, and, and you hop around from a, from one church to another every three, four, five years, you never really get known by the people of God. So that season in seminary, I think, is is a huge gift and an opportunity for you to like just be content in anonymity, so to speak, not in a sinful way, but in in uh, obsolescent, so to speak, where no one thinks you're the the guy, uh, and the guys that, the, the men that I was in seminary with, some of those who have fallen, they were, they were those guys who everyone thought were going places, but they never had, had had that season in seminary to, uh, to kind of just labor in obscurity, do the hard work, and, and do some work in their own heart and soul uh, that would carry them through. I just want to say, the two yeah. of you need better friends. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think you've got some lists. Yeah, yeah but yeah, I, did, yeah. I just want to
2: point out that the numbers are, should actually encourage us. Yeah. Uh, among SBC Seminary graduates, the number who are still in ministry is incredibly high, yeah. so far higher than other denominations. But I think the thing is, we tend to be looking for the guys we know and who are loud and who are well-known. <laughs> that think the, the, what should comfort us is there are an awful lot of those guys who graduate from ministry, and they're preaching out of places, and that's just what they've given their lives to. That's right. Uh, the spectacular failures are horrifying to all of us and humbling, mm-hmm. but the, the good news is the, the Lord preserves his church.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. So JT, let's think about it. So somebody comes out of their theological training, whether that's a seminary or some other place, and they're serving in a local context like you. And those of you, I'm just curious, by show of hands, how many of you serving in a full-time vocational ministry setting? Uh, just by interest there. So you know the demands on your time. You're constantly pulled in a number of directions. There's always something else you could be doing urgently. One of the things that can uh, be neglected over time is to keep sharpening your tools and maintaining your own personal growth. So what are some things that you've done and what advice would you give to people to, to continue to get ongoing theological training while they're serving in the context of a local ministry?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. And candidly, it's challenging. It's harder than I thought it was going to be. i had such an uh, incredible opportunity to devote myself to full-time theological education for almost eight years. And then you come into the local church ministry and you realize how hard it is and how many demands there are on your time. So I, I, would, I would be remiss to, to not acknowledge how challenging it is for me, the most helpful aspect has been cultivating a community of men and women here who value it as much and sometimes perhaps even more than I do. And so we have reading groups where we're getting together regularly and reading and asking each other questions, whether that's of uh, certainly the texts of Scripture, but also just great theological texts that have kind of stood the test of time historically. And so if you're somebody who's maybe laboring in isolation or perhaps a smaller church staff, I would just encourage you to find one, two, or three or for other people who are interested in developing themselves theologically and engaging with them. Because I think one one of the false things that can happen in the conversation of theological education is that we think that when we get this certificate, theological development and growth is done. And that's just not true. Uh, The life of the pastor, the life of the missionary, the life of the faithful church member, and ultimately the life of every faithful Christian is a life of cultivating our minds and our hearts into into devotion and to the triune God. And so you did not graduate from seminary, or if you're about to graduate from seminary and finish your theological education, it's absolutely essential and important for you to continue to develop tools in the life of the church.
0: I want to come back to our two presidents on the panel. One of the things that unfortunately, has played out in the news over the last month or so, is the issues related to concerns about sexual abuse, domestic violence, uh, as it connects to pastors, seminary presidents, training, those types of things. And I want to ask a very uh, specific question, which is what can and should seminaries be doing to equip future leaders for the church to understand the contours of domestic violence and abuse and assault and harassment concerns to know how to navigate those in their churches, and what, what are some things that people can be doing back in their local congregational settings to help their churches along in those, those issues as well?
2: Yeah, another very good question, and a painful one you know, just to, to think through in terms of what we're all having to deal with. Uh, this is something that was not adequately on our horizon or curriculum uh, or attention in, in years past, uh, but it didn't just explode. It, it's, it's been on our minds for quite a long time. Um, at Southern, we have had to talk openly about these policies, I would, I would say for the last six or seven years, quite, quite candidly and openly. Uh, we now require that every single student at both the boys' College level and the seminary level must finish the Ministry Safe program, which we pay for as an institution. We're not even charging the students for it. We're just absorbing that entire cost uh, before they can graduate. And uh, and and now, basically, before they can matriculate for a second term, uh, they've got to finish that uh, that online program. It's not enough, but at least it's a it's it's a really good start towards towards dealing with this. Um, I pretty regularly write and communicate to the campus, and, uh, and, and even in in heart-to-heart conversations with faculty, staff, and with the entire student body. Insofar as we can, never have the student body in one place at one time. Um, We've got to talk even more uh, about, about our responsibility. We've, we've got to make really clear that the church and a Christian institution or a Christian is the safest place to go if one is looking for help, is abused, vulnerable, if you suspect uh, the abuse or harassment uh, of someone vulnerable. Uh, we've got to be
1: better than the world at dealing with this. Yeah.
0: I think uh, our
2: responsibility's higher.
0: Right?
1: I think there's a dual track that we have to address. One is the spiritual ecclesial, but the other is the legal uh, and the governmental. And unfortunately, I know that, I think the intentions have been good in the past. This is a spiritual matter. This is a church matter. We can handle it in house. They fail to recognize that if it is a criminal act, we have a moral and in some cases legal obligation to report it, especially if it's children. <laughs> That's not even up for debate, that's not up for question. Uh, We must report any suspected abuse of a child to law enforcement.
2: Or present threat to anyone of any age.
1: So we have to recognize that there is this Mm -hmm. responsibility to handle certain things in a certain way within the body of Christ, but there are other things for us to be um, true to the culture and context in which we live, we must also deal with that as well. It's pain, it's, it's hard. Uh, your initial impulse is, is not to do it in many cases, but it, we have to get over that and recognize if this is the law of the land, we are obedient to Romans 13, we do this, that does not negate working very diligently within the body of Christ to minister uh, spiritual healing and help as well. But there's this dual track, uh, there's this tension uh, that we have to address both of these things. And I know it's Southern and it's Southeast, and I suspect at the other schools, but I know in our schools, we're working very hard to help our students understand that when you go out into the local church, these are the two things you've got to deal with. You can't neglect one at the other. You've got to deal with both of them.
0: Sure. And that those are so important. And I want to come back, uh, open the, the whole panel, if anybody wants to chime in on this. Uh, in the seminary t- times, I've been connected with seminary as a professor, as a student, Uh, in academic administration, working with your schools and your churches, one of the things I've noticed in terms of training is it's often very white and very male. So what are some things that we can help our our people here and our institutions think about in terms of championing diversity, both in terms of gender and ethnicity? What comes to mind on that front?
4: I think one of the first things we need to do, not just in terms of student body, but have a diverse curriculum. That the students would be learning from a diversity of voices, both men and women, but also uh, kind of the global church. I mean, I think it's it's uh, it's certainly reasonable to make sure that every single curriculum is exemplifying some kind of a diversity that doesn't just embody our specific context or church ministry, but is inviting the voices in of the global church and of the historic church, right? Because. Uh, Christianity is not simply a, a Western religion, but ultimately an Eastern religion, an African religion. Thomas Oden has done a lot of great work in this. And so inviting those voices to come to bear into the life of the mind and the life of the theological heart, I think is really important. Hopefully in doing that, it's going to create more of a diversity of conversations and hopefully a diversity of student body, which I think you guys could speak to better. Yeah, I think we, we
2: also have to watch the way we frame this, to be honest, because uh, there's a, a, first of all, if you talk about American evangelicals, you talk about American Protestants, and you talk about Southern Baptists, you're talking about overwhelmingly white over history for reasons, some of which were demographic and some shamefully were horrifyingly sinful. But for the last 30 years, the only growth in the Southern Baptist Convention has been ethnic and racial uh, diversity. The leading edge of growth in the Southern Baptist Convention for the last 25 years has been in uh, in ethnic churches. And so here's good news. God is showing his favor and his correction to a, mm-hmm. to a denomination, and, uh, and we need to be very grateful for that. Uh, on the, the male-female side, obviously this is something have, I've had to do with this in the article that I've got up right now and had to deal with the Associated Press and the Washington Post in the last few days. Is Southern Baptist theological education overwhelmingly male? Yes, and it is because we are complementarian. Right. Now, we have been looking at horrifying corruptions of complementarian. We've been looking at misappropriations and uh, and misapplications of complementarianism. But the the bottom line is that it should be really good news to us that God is calling young men to serve as pastors of churches and elders. We should be very thankful. Uh, The the New York Times front page article on theological education pointed out that liberal divinity schools are predominantly women and, and not headed for the pastorate. Now, so I just want to say that when you are looking at the New Testament, you are looking at a pattern there. You're not going to be surprised to think if you could put a seminary in there, those who are going to be training for the past are young men. But when I went to a seminary that was anti complementarian, avowedly egalitarian, and we went there clearly complementarian, fought a war over it, so we have fewer women or a smaller percentage of women as students now. No! We have more than twice as many women at Southern Seminary than we had when we had uh, a far lesser enrollment. The percentages, every single degree program at Southern Seminary is open to men and women, every single degree program. There are more women in Southern Seminary's PhD program now by number and percentage than at any point in history. And, uh, and it's because we are really clear about our conviction, but we are really clear about how much we honor women, how necessary women are in, uh, in, in, in the work of Christ and in the church, and how much we're gonna celebrate that. So again, I just, I just wanna push back and say, Success for us is not becoming the PCUSA. Right. But faithfulness for us is fulfilling a New Testament picture
1: of the church. And that's going to be really healthy. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can be a biblical complementarian without um, raising uh, the standard and respecting the dignity, worth, and value and giftedness of women. I don't think you're a true complementarian unless you do. That's right. We've tracked in the same way that Southern has. We have now almost 30% of our entire population of students is female, twice what it was during the liberal years, and both when it comes to male-female issues, gender issues, and race issues, I, I, for me, Philip, the key has become uh, has been intentionality, working hard to help uh, ethnic minorities know we want you here. Not only do we want you here, uh, we want you uh, to have a seat at the table. We want to we not we not only want to teach you, we also want to learn from you. Yep. And, you know, we know what the church in heaven is going to look like. Mm-hmm. Church on earth are, to the best of its ability, reflect what that church looks like, where every mm-hmm. tribe, tongue, people, and nation are coming together to worship the Lamb. Men and women. And women. Yes, absolutely. There's no gender distinction in that regard. Granted, and rightly, I believe, we are complementarian when we understand how God operates and sets up His structure for the home and the church, but again equal in worth, equal in value, giftedness, all of those things, that's what a good, healthy complementarianism looks like. And I think, again, uh, Dr. Mueller wrote an article a few weeks ago that I think was absolutely stellar and spot on when he talked about the wrath of God coming up on the Southern Baptist Convention. I've had a number of people say, do you think he was right? And I've said, without any reservation, I think he absolutely was right. But coming out of that can be repentance, brokenness, and healing on the other side. And I'm hopeful, uh, even somewhat optimistic, that that's where we're going to head out of all of this. And if that's true, God will honor that, uh, and we'll be the better and stronger for it.
4: One of the things uh, related, uh, just thinking about this from the perspective of the church and trying to do theological education in the church, uh, a few things. I mean, I think we want to say that theological education, if it's man alone, it's not good, as you've out, Dr. Rick, that's, that's not biblical complementarianism. The Bible is very clear about that, and that includes uh, the classroom. My experience as a, as a pastor and professor has typically been, for with female students, has been, and I just think it's important for us as educators to think about this and pastors to think about this, is typically my experience has been that women are almost 10 times out of 10 the best students because they have not been given a seat at the table. They have to earn it. Men are given a seat at the table typically because of their gender. And so my experience has been, is in, in our classrooms here at the Village Church, is that women are flocking to this because typically theological education has been inaccessible to them because of life, life stage or whatever. It might be financial accessibility. And so, as, 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 uh, first of all, I'd say to, to men in the room who are pursuing theological education, you should step your game up uh, because the women are doing a fantastic job. And they're outpacing you. They yeah. just simply are. And the women in the room, hang with us. Keep learning. There's going to be places for you to lead in the life of the local church and to be a part of the conversation and have a seat at the table.
2: You know, I, sometimes people ask, why does Southern Seminary now have a women's studies program?
4: It's because I don't believe in it. Right.
2: I believe a women's studies program is called systematic theology, right. Old Testament, New <laughs> Testament. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. And uh, there's a reason why we don't put that <laughs> off to the side. Yeah. Absolutely. I want
0: to finish us with one final question. You know, this, this panel's entitled The Gospel and the Future of Theological Education. So I'm going to start with you, Matt, and then anybody else that wants to jump in. Think 20 years into the future. What's one thing that you hope is true about theological education 20 years from now? Well, Google will have taken care of it for us.
3: And, uh, <laughs> we won't need it, no. I, I, I'm hopeful, actually. I'm, I'm, I think I'm a glasses-half-full kind of guy, I hope. Uh, I'm hopeful that 20 years from now, we will see a recovery of kind of institutional optimism among the next generation of, of Christians, whether you're Southern Baptist, evangelical, whatever. I, I think right now we're living in a moment where there can be so much distrust of institutions or a minimization of the opportunity in the kingdom to leverage institutions for for kingdom effectiveness. So I'm, I'm, in, I'm asking you in this room, uh, our students, and folks in the SBC to lean in, don't back off of institutions, lean into institutions. If you want to have a seat at the table, as we've been talking about, if you're a sister in Christ and you're frustrated by the way things are, don't check out, lean in. Uh, if you're a brother or sister of color, like, don't check out, lean in. We need you at the table. And I'm hopeful that, yeah, two decades from now, we will see progress and movement forward in our fa- uh, faithfulness uh, to Christ as, as we do that. We are
1: characterized by a great passion for the Great Commission, standing without apology on an inerrant Bible. That's where I hope we are 20 years from now. Well,
2: amen to that.
1: <laughs> and uh, I, I just want to say uh, right here, the
2: two of us right here, brothers, we are in this together, amen. and that means that our great hope and commitment to you, while this is on live stream and video, is that 20 years from now, we will be former presidents yes, <laughs> of, uh, of two theological seminaries. And we have—we we, we, the two of us have a deal where we will show up if necessary, there's office, no words will be necessary. And uh, all that to say, there's a passing of a baton that's really important. 20 years from now, I hope that to get to where Danny just so eloquently said, we've passed the baton well. And uh, 20 years from now, I want Mary and I to be really, really happy and encouraging to people as we are looking for Mm -hmm. (laughs) great-grandchildren. And, uh, and look, I just, I just want to tell you, I, I'm in a different place than I was 25 years ago, uh, just in where I am in life. And uh, I am really praying that the Lord will, uh, will lead to a gracious generational transition Amen. so that Danny and I can bless and, uh, and uh, those behind us can be blessed. Amen. Amen.
4: Yeah, I think the last thing I'll I'll say, just uh, my hope for theological education in the 20 years is that what we were doing at the Village Church, which feels kind of experimental and seeing what the Lord's doing, I hope that we've been leapfrogged by a few thousand churches, that churches across the country and ultimately across the globe are beginning to value theological education in in new and exciting ways where we can learn from them and, and continue to grow. Theology is absolutely essential for the life of a healthy church.
0: Amen. Absolutely. Well, will you join me in thanking our panel?
1: Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. And join us next week as we hear a message from Matt Chandler about courage.